The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, today we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we are continuing. This is part four in our series, Learning from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we're in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus gives life. Anger will kill you, but Jesus will give you life. 84% of people say that this generation, we see anger in greater ways than we saw it a generation ago. Uncontrolled anger is prevalent among youth in the UK. Anger is the number one cause of traffic accidents. Man, I I get it. They drive on the wrong side of the road. That'll make you angry, right? (laughs) Unchecked anger exponentially increases the likelihood of a stroke or of a heart attack. Literally, anger kills, but Jesus gives life. There's an author, counselor named David Thomas, and he wrote a book that I've really enjoyed called How to Raise Emotionally Strong Boys. And when he starts talking about anger, he talks about it like the, the Hulk. And basically what he says is that we've got to recognize this emotion in us and then we've got to regulate it. For us as believers, we do that by instruction from the Word and power from the Spirit. And if we don't recognize it and we don't regulate it, then we'll have to repair what anger destroys. Might have to repent of sin that gets in us. There's a scene in the Avengers, or one of the Avengers movies, where the Avengers are assembling. And there's this big bad thing coming after them. And Captain America looks at Bruce Banner and says, Dr. Banner, now might be a time for you to get some of that anger going. And Bruce Banner says, that's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. Well, that seems very true of a lot of folks in our culture. I watch those movies and see the destruction Hulk brings about, and I like they're real, right? (laughs) How much is that going to cost to fix? (laughs) But see, anger leaves in its wake a path of destruction that is actually costly so can we recognize when we're getting angry can we let the spirit of god within us regulate that and see how unhealthy unchristlike it can be and when we miss it can we repent and can we repair the movies we watch and the games we play glorify anger We treat it like it's no big deal, but it is dangerous. Someone gets angry and six people die in Nashville. Someone gets angry in Cleveland, Texas, and his neighbors end up dead. Yesterday, just north of Dallas in Allen, someone was angry and killed eight people. We, we stopped to pray for that in the first service, and I, I think it won't hurt us to do that again and to pray for our time in the Word, so let's just stop. God, we hate the devastation that anger can bring if left unchecked. 
Father, we pray for your mercy and for your comfort for families and communities that are grieving in the wake of anger. And God, while we pray for this literal devastation that it's brought in the wake of that, God, we, we know that anger breaks up homes and breaks up relationships between brothers and sisters, and it makes workplaces hard and neighborhoods difficult and anger destroys, but Jesus gives life. So God, let us be a people who walk in the life-giving love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's look at Matthew 5. Our text is verses 21 through 26 today. We need to remember this is not many sermons Jesus is preaching. It's one sermon If we were to read it through, it would take about 16 minutes and 18 seconds, and there's one theme of what Jesus is going to do in a new people He is creating. And He's told them, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's going to take something supernatural. We look back because of the resurrection of Christ and see it's the work of the Spirit in us. But He's changing everything. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Leave it before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus makes a statement. He's going to make five more times. This first one is the longest and kind of most complex when he dives into it of six statements related to the Ten Commandments. This moment where God through Moses gives this succinct, distilled understanding of what is meant by the law. And Jesus is going to say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving our enemies. And and he's doing this to help his new people understand. Here's what the law and prophets are aiming at. Jesus isn't wanting to overturn them. He wants to fulfill them. And what we're going to see is that Jesus takes an Old Testament statement and he gives observation what it says, he gives interpretation what it means, and then he gives application. And so we're going to look at his observation, interpretation, and application of an Old Testament text, and then we're going to do observation, interpretation, and application of this New Testament text. When I was getting my master's, and when Tim and Dave were getting theirs, other people on our staff were getting theirs, and we've taught in classes before, When you study the text, you do observation, interpretation, and application. Observation is what does it say. Interpretation, 
what does it mean in application? How do we live it out? There's a great old book on that called Living by the Book. A, a DTS professor named Howard Hendricks wrote that. It's what's taught there. You might hear observation, interpretation, and application and go, wait a second, did Jesus go to DTS too? He did not. He went to Phoenix Seminary. Listen, we're going to look at observation, interpretation, and application. Observation comes in verse 21. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable of judgment. So, so the rabbis had added to this commandment, if you murder, you're going to be liable to judgment. This is not how my people are going to act. It's It's from the Ten Commandments, as we call them, or as the Hebrew people said, the Ten Words. These are the words that really start with the worship of God and the worship of God only. And and these words impact all of life. And they were words not just meant so that God's people who had been delivered and saved out of slavery in Egypt, not just so that they would not murder but that this would dive down into their heart and into their mind and they had it distilled down just to the action and they weren't understanding so Jesus saying this would have piqued their ears but they probably weren't prepared for what was next and it's how he interprets it Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, he gives this ascending order of consequence when we leave anger unchecked or when these listeners leave anger unchecked. So he says, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. Well, we might read that and think he's talking about the sort of judgment that is the hell of fire. What he's talking about is a communal judgment. Maybe it would be at the synagogue among the elders. Maybe it would be at the city gate among the elders. But if if you were angry, you'd be liable for the elders saying, hey, this is not right. Maybe the, the closest idea we have to something like a communal judgment came in the wake of the Rwandan genocide. After the genocide, there were so many perpetrators who had done wrong, they couldn't try them all in courts. And so there was a long-standing communal court called Gakaka in Rwanda where you go before the community and the community gives judgment. And sometimes there's been a crime committed and so the community decides on maybe what the consequence or punishment for the crime will be But the aim is restoration and reconciliation. That's happening even to this day. Jesus says if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. But then he says if you insult your brother, if you read it, you might understand it as if you call your brother a moron or an idiot. You make fun of his mind. You'll be liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. You would go before the big court and you'd be in trouble with them. And then he says, but if you call your brother, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Well, why you fool? I think Jesus is tying into Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You say someone's a fool, you're speaking to their heart. 
You're speaking about their heart. And he says, judgment for that is of utmost seriousness. When they heard the hell of fire, the word there is Gehenna. It would have, they would have connected it to the valley of Hinnom. And there's this place, Gehenna, this, this burning trash heap of bodies and animal carcasses and the worst of refuse. And it was awful. And Jesus is trying to give a picture of what it means to be separated from God and the torment is there. So he uses that phrase for them to understand you will be liable to the hell of fire and what he's saying, he's connecting it to his second coming really. I'm gonna return, you'll stand before me and be found unrighteous. It has implications for eternity and we don't talk about it perhaps enough but it's there. Now he's not saying Hey, it's okay to do one and not the other. Oh, no, no, I didn't insult anyone. I was just angry. I'm okay, right? What he's saying is your anger, if it grows, it can have devastating consequence for you and for others. To kill with a knife, to call someone a fool, to destroy another's character with your words, to be angry in your heart, all these things start cooking in the same pot. Is there a difference between gossip and stabbing? Yeah, there's a consequential difference. There certainly is. But both are evil before the Lord. The heart of wickedness is the same. Not committing murder is good and right, but it's not the bar measurement for full devotion to God. It's got to go deeper, and the reason it's got to go deeper is because anger will kill you. But Jesus will give you life. So when Jesus applies this, he just gives them two examples. And he says, if if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift before the altar. Go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So if someone's angry at you, you try to make this right if it depends on you, you go to them. Then he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with, with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Well, in their context and ours, if, if this is literally, if Jesus is given legal advice here, that would apply to very few people. Well, see what I think he's saying is don't leave your anger unchecked. Reconciliation matters, community matters, get things right with people. Because it's part of a sermon, and in this section of the sermon, as he's telling people he's gonna give life, that acting on his words is a solid foundation. Anger will destroy you, just like lust and lying and adultery and retaliation, and not loving your enemies. So how do we read this, and how do we do observation and interpretation and application? We've done a little bit of that as we've read it, but observation also involves looking at the context, because that book we reference, Living by the Book, Howard Hendricks would tell you that every Word is part of a phrase, it's part of a verse, and that verse is part of a passage, that passage part of a chapter, that chapter part of a book, that book part of a testament that's part of the Bible. And so we look at the 
at the words and what they literally mean, the, the literary genre and words, and then we look at the context and the Sermon on the Mount in the context of the book of Matthew. And Matthew is saying something to Jewish believers. He's using a rhetoric to help them understand that the people of Jesus are the people of God and Jesus is the end times king that God promised. And even if we started in Matthew chapter one, we would see that Jesus was, was the prophet, the king. God had promised. He was the one who was coming. He was born of a virgin. Like Isaiah said he would be. He was born in Bethlehem like Micah said he would be. He was God with us like Isaiah said he would be, but then there's something more that Matthew communicates, that Jesus is the true Israelite, the one who all Israel was supposed to be. You can get a little picture of it if we look together in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus is a baby. He and Joseph and Mary, they flee Herod. They flee the serpent king, and they go into... Egypt, and they come out of Egypt, and Hosea 11, 1 through 4 is referenced where God says of Israel, out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, in Matthew 3, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism like the children of Israel pass through the waters of the Red Sea and pass through the River Jordan on the way to the Promised Land. Well, then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, is tested in the wilderness, and he again overcomes the serpent king. And then in chapter 5, where we are, Jesus goes up on the mountain and deals with the law. And here's what we would see is that we observe this, and so what's left is interpretation and application, and what we're gonna find is that Jesus is the true prophet of the law, the true Israelite, the Messiah and the Savior, the son of Abraham and the son of David, and this impacts everything, including anger, because he is creating a whole new group of whole life disciples who will be wholeheartedly devoted to him. So interpretation, well, what do we do? I hear what you're saying, Chase, but if we interpret this, this isn't all the Bible says about anger. What about righteous anger, right? You can have righteous anger. I mean, the Bible says be angry and do not sin. The Bible says be slow to anger so we can be angry and not sin, right? Well, we gotta be really careful with that. I'm gonna be honest with you. Because, yeah, I think when six people get killed in Nashville... That makes me angry. When people get killed at an outlet mall that I've been to, and I live in a world where I go, can I take my wife shopping there? That makes me angry. But my anger's dangerous. See, when I see millions of children aborted before they're born, I get angry. But there are some people that instead of being angry at the sin, get angry at the sinner. They get so mad at people performing abortions that they go and blow up a clinic. And then you've just become what you hate. 
So you might be able to pull righteous anger off, but I'll just tell you, I've not found myself able to do that. And we've got to be careful. There are two passages that people quote. I want us to look at one, and then we'll talk briefly about the other. If you want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, you can. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking to the church, and he's telling them what life ought to look like, and he's telling them to put off things. And so in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, he says, your English Bible is going to say it this way, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil and let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own deeds so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So he's showing, don't do this, but do this. Well, the words that we read, be angry, literally say to be angry. So they might mean be angry or they might mean in your anger. It's a passive imperative. And what that means is that there's something in you you're not acting on, but you're responsible for. And that's what happens. Anger gets inside us, and it's like a lion we think we can tame. I'll just grow a bigger cage, but it eats us up. And so he says passively to be angry. And then he says with this active imperative three times, and he uses this word with them that's the strongest sense you can have it. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on it. Don't give the devil a foothold. You stay angry, it will quickly lead to sin if you let the sun go down on it and you will give the devil a foothold that will impact you and those around you. In your anger, don't sin, don't stay angry. And then James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Why? Because the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. There are lots of things I've found myself angry at in 48 years. I know I don't look a day over 47. (laughs) But I'll tell you, I don't know one of those moments where I've ended up at the righteousness of God in my anger. And James says, it's just not going to happen. He says, it's not going to happen. Anger ought to be slow to surface and quick to sink because God, you think, well, who has the right to be angry? God. The one who has the right to be angry is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we are His people. It's difficult. C.S. Lewis said the pleasure of anger, the gnawing attraction which makes one return again and again to its theme lies, I believe, in the fact that one feels entirely righteous when one is angry. You you get this. When you get angry, you think, well, no, I'm right about this, right? I'm absolutely right. If they hadn't done this, I wouldn't be angry in it. I'm justified in it. And it seems like the other person's just completely wrong. I don't know if you know that feeling, but I know that feeling. And if I don't bring that to Jesus fast, it goes somewhere awful fast. See, we've got things like be angry and do not sin. We've got things like be slow to anger, but then we have the weight of Scripture. 
the weight of Scripture, the first time anger is mentioned in Scripture, God looks at a guy named Cain and says, why are you angry? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to be your master? You think anger is not impacting us so deeply? The first guy born to a man and a woman got angry and killed his brother. Moses, this amazing prophet of God, got angry and acted in anger and did not enter the promised land. We could go throughout the Old and New Testament just a few words from Proverbs. A wrathful man stirs up discord, but one slow to anger calms strife. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a castle. And listen to this one. If someone has a hot temper, let him take the consequences. If you get him out of trouble once, you're going to have to do it again. Make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. See, I I think if you just kept diving down and down and down, I think Jesus is wanting his hearers and he wants us to understand the weight of anger. And what I'd like you to do is I want you to think about what you feel. What comes to your mind? What surfaces in you when you hear the word murder? Let that surface in you when you get angry with your brother and sister. Let me just say that again. You think about what surfaces in you when you hear murder. And to feel the full weight of this, let that surface in you when you're angry with a brother and sister because anger will kill you. See, Jesus is saying the bar is far higher We talked about it last week. This is something we cannot attain on our own, but we must do, so what do we do? Well, do we just try to muster it up? I'll just work real hard not to be angry. You do that very long, you'll get angry at the fact you can't do it. Or maybe you just go, no, it's impossible. I know I can't do it. God's gracious. I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm just going to live in this state of anger. Or maybe... God says you must do it and you can't do it. So you rely on my spirit. You get empowered by my spirit and instructed by my word and you can live free from anger. See, I think Jesus is saying his people must do it because sin tends to be far more serious than we surmise and anger will kill you, but Jesus will give you life. 
He came to fulfill the law. And so he's telling these people, and by extension, he's telling us, his people, that we ought to be the sort of people God intends us to be. And it means that things are going to be different than we've ever known. He's saying, here's the right heart response. Don't be angry. He's not contradicting the law. This is the spirit of the law. The rabbis had been teaching them in a truncated way, and Jesus wants his people to see the full understanding. So what's the application? See, Jesus says the application can't just be murder. Jonathan Pennington says that the point of the Ten Commandments was never Just don't do the sins outwardly and don't worry about your heart. Through all the prophets of the Old Testament, we hear God's people being called to this true heart and mind and soul and strength righteousness that they can't do on their own. And so for us with anger, we've got to realize we can't do it on our own either. Sinclair Ferguson says, in us, animosity is a time bomb. We don't know when it will go off. We must deal with it quickly before the consequences of our bitterness get completely out of control because if you let anger go, one of three things can happen. It'll kill you or it'll kill somebody else or you can surrender it and give it to God. You can repent of your anger. And Jesus is saying, if it's not true heart repentance, it's not repentance. So he does have these two applications. Certainly, if someone's angry with you, you go and you seek to reconcile. You speak to them. You reach out to them. In verses 25 and 26, I don't think he's given us legal advice. But I do think he's saying reconciliation in your community really matters. Don't let yourself be judged because God is a righteous judge. And those who reject his teaching, who reject his ways, will find justice they're not prepared to deal with. So what's our application today? What do I do with my anger? I've I've got to recognize it can kill, it destroys, but Jesus gives life. Here are some practical applications. Number one, what you do with your anger is not, I'm going to get on social media and tell everybody how they ought to respond to this situation I'm mad about, and if it's not like me, it's not right. That's not the application Jesus is aiming for. Be slow to anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't stay angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Do not retaliate. Revenge yourself. Leave room for the wrath of God. Overlook an offense. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Chase, do you know what people have done to me? Do you know how angry they made me? Do you know how they've hurt me? See, in our context, forgiveness looks like a guy naked and bleeding for the sins of others. In fact, for the sins of those who are killing him. So much so that he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, this seems impossible. And this is part of what Matthew is going to reveal about Jesus. We look back rightly through the lens of the resurrection 
at this man who had every right to be angry, and instead he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, I don't think the opposite of anger is peace. I think the opposite of anger is trusting God. Coming to Jesus and saying, I can't do this on my own, but I'm gonna trust your word, I'm gonna trust your ways, and I'm going to surrender even my anger to you because we see what he did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our anger should open our eyes and lead us to Jesus. He's calling his people to a transformed life that we must do that's impossible without the work of the Spirit inside us. Wholehearted devotion, whole life discipleship, we lay everything, including our anger, at his feet. Would you bow with me? That maybe today there are folks in this room that just see and understand they're enslaved by anger. They're held captive by it. They hold a grudge against a family member, a brother, a coworker, a neighbor, and they just can't let go. It hinders their walk with you. It hinders their fellowship with you. It hinders their relationships at home. It is stunning their growth in Christ. And God, we say aloud as a body, our, our core values start with surrender. So today, Lord, may we surrender our anger to you because you give life. So may we walk in the life you died and rose from the dead to give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.